what would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. How do you describe your sexual identity? Do you identify with a term like gay or straight, queer, bi, pan, asexual? Or are you more like labels, schmables? If you're like many people, you might not even know what some of these terms even mean. Today, we're going to explore a few identities, including bisexuality, asexuality, and demisexuality, and more with a friend and former colleague I haven't seen in over 10 years. Carolina Hoyos is a first-generation Peruvian-American Afro-Indigenous Latinx and a fellow in the 2019 Laskins Native American TV Writers Lab, sponsored by Universal, Disney, and HBO. As an actor-musician, she sings the grand finale song as her character, Antonella, in the miniseries Too Old to Die Young on Amazon Prime. As the artist A Girl I Know, she released her latest single, Mi Hombre El Diablo, and is gearing up to direct the music video for the song. Thank you so much for being here, Carolina. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. So we met in a play we were in. <laughs> yes. Which feels like a lifetime ago. It was. <laughs> we, we were playing different women that the, the director-writer had dated. Mm-hmm. What yeah. do you recall from that experience most? Oh, you know what? It was actually my first experience being in a production with mostly women. And it was it was a different experience to me because I grew up a tomboy. So it was at first it was like, what is happening? And, but it was beautiful because I got to bond with everyone. And I don't know if you remember Sutera. She was helping us. I think she had worked with Leon on some other projects, but she wasn't actually in the play, but she was helping us. And I remember I needed to put my hair kind of up a little bit. And I, I had bobby pins, and I had, like, 15 bobby pins trying to put my hair up. And she was like, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. This is wrong. She takes them all out. She's like, you just need to. <laughs> and you just need to do a little X with them. So she helped me, and I was like, thank you, Mommy. Aww. I felt like, you know, I had a sister that was kind of teaching me the ropes. And I was so like, a more nurturing atmosphere and collaborative. Yes. I felt like we had a really good vibe. For the most part, I thought we all got along well and it was a really emotional piece. It was heavy. It was yeah. definitely heavy. And I think I think the writer-director really honored that, the many colors of a woman and what we go through. Um, and I know in that version, he was in the play, but in, in the following versions, because he kept developing it, he wasn't in the play, because the play really wasn't about him. It wasn't. No. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do think that that was probably a smart decision Yeah. Uh, to make it more about that it felt to me like it was a healing process for him to write, which I understand yes. as a writer. It's so cathartic. Mm-hmm. And it grew and blossomed and, and all these different things. And it's interesting because I actually sang in it, but yes, you didn't. I did and you're not. a professional singer. <laughs> Were you sitting there going, like, why are they singing? <laughs> no, I loved being kind of anonymous because I'd spent so many years in New York uh, performing with a band. I performed with a, a few different people, but with a band that I was in for four years. And I went through like the gamut with the label system. I had a lawyer, I had all that stuff happening and doing showcases. And then there was like the chance that I was getting to go solo 
to have a career, to have a real career. And, and I was I was stubborn. I was I was like, I want to be in a band. I don't want that. And then that came back to bite me anyway, because once I moved to L.A., then then that band kind of resented me for moving. And it was like, I have to move here for my health. New York wasn't good for me. You know, like health comes first. I can't just be about career. Yeah. You know, if, if I don't have good health, I can't go for career. It's not going to fulfill me. I don't think that anybody who approaches careers in the arts from the artist standpoint can. Yeah. Because artistry requires so much nurturing. There's this, I think, false belief that you have to be tortured all the time to be an artist. Yes. And I do not agree with that. Yeah. You can go from that and have inspiration from that, but it's so important to heal from it to really be able to communicate and help others because otherwise right. you're wallowing and you're like, come be, what is it? Misery loves company. Come yes. be miserable with me. Right. Which isn't really fun. No. <laughs> totally. <laughs> no. So I actually don't know a lot about your upbringing. Uh, I'm curious what you learned about sex and sexuality growing up. I know you grew up in the South. Yes, I grew up in the South. I grew up, uh, I'm a recovering Catholic. So um, everything was, you know, taboo. Like private schools? And... My sister went to private school. My, my, both my parents were in private, well, they were in boarding school, Catholic boarding schools. But they weren't that strict. I want to say my family is really progressive. Um, but still, just growing up in a Latino household, it's like, that kind of overbearing sense of guilt. And even my cousins, um, one set of cousins, one aunt is particularly religious. So that set of family is is very like, I had a picture once when I had my bare back showing, but it looked like a kind of jeans ad. And they were just so offended. They were like, we don't need to see that. And it was like, um, my fiance took that picture. He's in the picture with me. It wasn't like a, a, even a photo shoot. It wasn't like I was doing that on a professional thing. Wow. There was a shoot between us, and it was we made it into a flyer to promote uh, our first show actually together for a photography exhibit. So it was such a beautiful photograph that we were like, we need to use this. It's art, yeah. you know. But they saw it as sexual and demonic, <laughs> whatever. Oh my goodness! So growing up, it was like still kind of a struggle of like you know, what's right, what's wrong, everything was limited. But I had experiences early on, and my mother was so great because as soon as I told her, she was like, okay, we're getting you on birth control. <laughs> Might as well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to tell you, no, don't do that. You know, she knows. That's amazing because yeah. it sounds like you were kind of entrenched in the ideas for purity culture, right? Yeah. And it sounds like your mom probably had learned, I think so many people who pay it forward in a positive way, they learned the hard way. Like, yeah. she had to experience that same kind of shaming, and she didn't want you to have that. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty amazing. And I mean, you know, I, I'm sure it's because times have changed, but she was a late bloomer in terms of having children. She didn't have me till she was 41. So, and I'm I'm the youngest, so she had her first child when she was 32 through 33. But her mother had her when she was like 19 or 18 or something. So I think, you know, obviously over centuries and generations, times have changed, but she's just one step removed from a mother who had her pretty young. So I think it was when, when I was 14, I was like, Mom, I did it. <laughs> she's like, let's go get you on birth control. That's also awesome yeah. that you could go to her and say that. Yeah, yeah. So that was a nice thing. I knew I had that comfort and it was like, this is, you know, something I don't know anything about. And in schools, it still isn't great trying to teach sex education and, and prevention. 
abstinence is not going to work. I know. It's not going to work. We all know this. I mean, anecdotally, I mean, no one's ever surprised by the studies, but they do lots of studies. Yeah. And the more you teach abstinence, the more people have STIs and have less safe sex and the more unplanned pregnancy. I mean... It's so evident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So that's, that's amazing that she did that. I loved the piece that you wrote for Free to Love uh, called I Identify as Two-Spirit. Yes. And you shared that you're bisexual, demisexual. I wonder, given that you had limited access, as so many of us do, to sex education, mm-hmm. and that particular identity is even now still not talked about very much right and in kind of broad culture when did you start to kind of explore what your sexual identity was that it wasn't necessarily this catholic idea of heteronormativity well as a young girl i knew i was attracted to both sexes um and there was you know experimentation as a young young girl and, and as I got older, it, again, like the Catholic thing was I didn't see that represented anywhere in the media. And I was like trying to, you know, kind of shove it away. And it kept coming up. And by the time I was 14 or 15, I remember I, I had taken a nap on my friend's couch. And then this, this girl that would come over, she was about my age, um, she would always flirt with me. And I was, and at this point, I was like, ooh, I don't know what to do. It's, this is scary. I don't know what's, <laughs> is this right? Is this wrong? And and she she was kind of like tickling, like kind of brushing up on my arm to wake me up. And then when I woke up, I'm like right next to her. And I was I kind of froze. But then I was like, this is this doesn't feel wrong. You know, this isn't like you froze probably because it felt good. It felt. Yeah. And I just didn't know how to embrace it. And then I think around that time I started going to raves. <laughs> um, and then it was like anything goes there. And, and then it was more more accepted and even friends of mine would you know they opened up to me about their sexuality and then it became a conversation and the the principles of the rave culture when I was in it um were p-l-u-r peace love unity respect Mm. so we accepted everyone it was very what we consider counterculture but everyone from all walks of life was was accepted and was celebrated and we didn't know you know we didn't it's not that we didn't know but we kind of ignored the, the mainstream and sure. what what they thought of it. We still kind of, you know, went into like, we would go to concerts and stuff and still participate in the mainstream, but we knew we were powerful together, supporting each other. That's huge. Community is so yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah. The one time that demisexuality, I think, has come up in all of my episodes was in an episode on asexuality. Uh-huh. I interviewed this wonderful woman, Lauren Jankowski. She started Asexual Artists to highlight and elevate artists who identify as asexual because she saw such a vast um, gap as far as representation. And she she's a writer, and she read all these books, and she never saw herself depicted, her, her, her identity depicted. Yes. And I really appreciated how she defined asexuality. It's um, the most general definition of asexuality is a lack of sexual attraction or desire. Um, it's actually kind of a spectrum, though, of orientation. So you'll have, like, heteroromantic asexuals, homoromantic asexuals, panromantic asexuals. Um, and then you'll have gray A's who will occasionally experience sexual attraction, only in certain circumstances. Um, you'll have demisexuals who will only experience sexual attraction after um, forming a very strong emotional bond with a person. 
And then you have people like me. I'm an aromantic asexual. I don't experience any kind of desire for um, an intimate relationship or a romantic relationship. And I find a lot of uh, satisfaction in platonic relationships like friendships and so on. I'm curious if that's how you would define demisexuality. She mentioned it's after you have a deep emotional connection. Yeah, and that was something that after years of of like fully realizing what defined me was that that is what connects me to whether it's and and I'm still exploring whether it includes pansexuality, but whether it's a man or a woman, it's usually a connection that happens first and then an intimacy of of closeness and like she was saying platonic friendships that there's that connection, and then it could happen that I'm sexually attracted to them or romantically and sexually attracted to them. Um, but it's usually linked to, you know, a real deep friendship first. Mm. Yeah. I really appreciate that. It's interesting because I think that for people who've never heard of this term, when they hear that, they go, well, I like to get to know a person first, which is different from an identity, yes. right? Yes. So could you speak to what that difference is? If someone's like, well, I think that's me because, how do you know the difference? Um, well, if we want to get a little graphic. <laughs> you can. This is Girl Boner. Graphic it out. Um, there's been times when I've tried to engage in sexual activity with someone that I was kind of into, kind of, you know, feeling something for but really didn't know them that well and things just wouldn't work so it's like my body saying "Uh -uh, it's like the the physical arousal doesn't happen it doesn't happen and things just get awkward and it's like this isn't flowing and it's really because we haven't spent enough time together and I'm not even still sure that I like you at that point like at that level to really go there and to like give my all because it's energy too that I'm giving someone um and it's interesting because it's the reason I really want to put a platform to it is because it's such a stereotype that Latinas are sex driven and sex crazy. And I've had I've had representation. I've had different people who were like, I never took you as the type to not want to be like nude on camera all the time. And I was like, what? Wow. Wow. What? How do you see me? Like, that's so one dimensional <laughs> and stereotyping, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm really glad that you're speaking to that specifically because that is it's like the sassy, sexual seductress. Yeah. And you're like, no, I would you like to get to know each other? I mean, it's like, <laughs> with yeah. clothes on, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> one common myth I was reading about different myths from the uh, demisexual society, they said that one thing that comes up a lot is there's this presumption that, like, if you're demisexual, then you would never, ever, ever have casual sex. However, you, I mean, that term is interesting, too, in yeah. and of itself. Um, and they said that, I'll, they may. I mean, you can't no, you kind can. of put people all yeah. into one single box. Exactly. No, and I've and I've had, I think I've had like maybe one, one night stand, and but it turned into like a few weeks, you know. Um, so maybe you did sense an emotional. It was yeah, and it was intense. It was immediate. It was it was because the emotional thing was there right away. Exactly. That's the difference. So that I yeah, think. when when two spirits are really like linked together and flow, then that's different. And that's rare. That's super, super, super rare. Interesting. When I spoke with Lauren Jankowski the year following, I think this was 2016, we talked about myths about asexuality. And I found this one really insightful and and interesting. Well, I think one of the the major issues uh, with people accepting asexuality is this idea that love has to be ranked in order of importance. So 
the way our society has it uh, built up, it's uh, your kids at the top, then your romantic partner or spouse, then your family, and then your friends, and then everybody else. And when I was growing up, um, I was in an environment where it was weird to, to tell your friends that you love them. And that struck me as kind of odd because I was like, well, I feel just, just as strongly about this person as I do about a family member. It, it's just, it, it's love. And, but yeah, I was raised to believe that love is only something between spouses or between family. And as I got older and uh, when I went to college and started studying intersectional theory, I would I, I became way more aware of how many like dating and um, website ads I would see on TV and in magazines and, and just in all the media I consumed. And I was just like, wow, there is really an industry built up on this idea that romantic love is the most important love ever. And you even see it in like countless narratives. It's like that romantic relationship always has to be the most important. There always has to be like a romantic partner. And it really, it, it bugged me and it, it still bugs me that um, people get so protective of this hierarchy, which I, I, view, I, I see as very unhealthy. I thought that was a really important point that there isn't this hierarchy mm-hmm. of love and that when we assume that, then we erase people. That's right. Yeah. I, I've had friends who were so dead set on, on achieving that because that was always the goal. And then that once they would, they would disappear. They would forget about their friend family, even their family family. They, you know, that would fall down the priority list. And that's just, I love saying I love you to my friends, to my dog, <laughs> and to my family members. Yeah, but yeah. it's important. It's It's all around us. It shouldn't just be focused on one specific aspect. Yeah, yeah. This made me think of another really common myth about bisexuality, which is there's this other kind of presumption, almost the opposite, that you are then attracted to everybody. Yes. Oh, my gosh. We're greedy. We're we're overly sexual. We, we're down for orgies and threesomes. We're always the unicorn. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> which is a really interesting pairing with demisexuality. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, or if you're... It just to me, that's really fascinating because I read that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that a lot of people who are demisexual associate more and understand and relate more to people who are asexual than someone who is heterosexual, yet people think demisexual people are basically like straight but just emotional. And yeah. I was like, ouch. <laughs> that, I mean, that sounds really severe to me, but is that is that something that you have perceived? Yes, yes. Um, I can't tell you how many stereotypes I've run across and uh, propositions I've had made to me, and I tell people to lose my number when that happens. <laughs> Smart. Um, but yeah, they can't. They it seems like a lot of people that don't know can't separate the two or, or can't combine the two. They can't see them living in the same space. Um, for me, it doesn't. It, it doesn't matter what presents on the outside. It's really what's on the inside, the heart and the mind. If those are connecting with me, then there's possibility for more to happen romantically or sexually or both, hopefully, you know. Um, and it's and it's still rare that I'll even act upon it because it might be like, you know what, I just really admire this person and I'm feeling other things. But it doesn't mean I actually have to do anything about it because that could get complicated, too. Um, just because there's still an energy transfer that happens 
And then I know that energy, like we were saying, might be taken away from my actual friends, my actual family, the things I have going on in my own life. So it's right. it's actually way more level-headed than to be perceived as emotional. That's interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. And also, being demisexual, you just highlighted another really important fact that I think could be misperceived, which is... If you're demisexual and you have strong emotional feelings for someone, that doesn't therefore mean you're going to want to have sex with them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's an attraction and, yeah, it doesn't mean I'm going to act on it. But then I have to think, I must really admire this person. And there's more to explore as a friendship, as anything. Yeah. But just maybe more energy to give to that person in some way. In your story that you shared, it was really lovely to read about how your family you wanted to come out to them. You had mixed feelings. And at one point, you thought you would just wait until you were with a man. Yeah. Tell us how that unfolded. So um, I actually auditioned for a, uh, a pretty major role on the Stars, uh, the Stars series called Vida. Okay. And it's pretty much the first uh, Latinx show that shows um, different lifestyles. It shows... Um, bisexual, it shows gay, it shows uh, trans people in the Latinx world. And that's just something we've never seen. Never, never, never. And again, remember, I said my family was very progressive, but not having seen ourselves represented, I was like, I still don't know how they're going to take it if one of their own is part of this world. So I auditioned for the show and I, and I don't get nervous acting. It just doesn't happen. I feel like if I'm playing somebody else, it's kind of safe. But this was so close to home that I was like, if I book this, I, I got in my head, if I book this, I'm going to have to have that talk. It's going to be a forced talk with my mm -hmm. family because they're going to I'm going to want them to see this. It's an important it's important work that's out there that we need as representation. But I thought I'm not ready. And so it. it it ruined my audition. Oh, no. And my manager, who's known me for 15 years, and she's known me when I've dated both men and women, and she's seen the whole, you know, range of, of who I am. When she saw my first tape, she said, no, I know you. This is not you. Something's holding you back. Please do this again and know that, you know, you're supported, you're loved. Like, she was very, she's my cheerleader. She knew. So I did it again, and it was better, but it's still, you could tell that there was something limiting me. So I knew I was like, this is affecting my work now and my and my art and my passion and, and an important work that we need as a as a society in our community. So I, I worked up the nerve and I started exposing them to more media that was inclusive. Um, just little hints, little drops here and there. And, and even like my father, I would take him to a lot of theater with people of color. I took him to Kinky Boots. <gasps> he loved it. <laughs> and afterwards he was like, was that a man? <laughs> and then you could just see his humor was changing a little bit. Some of the things he was sharing with me were, were from that world. And I was like, okay, it looks like it's almost time. And then it just kind of, um, oh, then my sister-in-law and I were talking about media representation. And it, it came to the time she's, and, and she's a white woman. She's of Scottish descent. Um, she's married to my brother. I love her dearly, dearly. Um, and she was, she wanted to understand, mm -hmm. you know, what, uh, what we were talking about gross, um, gross generalizations of different cultures. And so, um, she was learning and she was asking questions and I was giving her the time and, 
And at one point, um, it came to the conversation of what about sexual uh, representation, sexual orientation representation? You know, should straight people be able to play gay and vice versa? And I said, you know, it's silly that I'm 41 years old and I still haven't come up to my family because I've never seen myself represented. Were you sitting there feeling like, here it comes? Like, was it about to come out of you? I, I think literally? it was through, no, I think it was through text. Okay. And, and then, but then she was like, oh my God, I didn't know. And I was like, I haven't told anybody but you because we're having this conversation and you're open to hearing it, but I'm giving you an example of how ridiculous is it that our progressive family, I can't even come out to them. Mm. Me as a huge progressive, live in your truth person, yeah. you know, I, I still like, isn't that ridiculous? But if I'd seen more of ourselves on screen and if my family had seen more of it, I would have been more comfortable too. And so then, um, you know, she said, whenever you're ready, I'm here for you if you want help, you know. So then the next time I was there for the holidays and I told my, my niece and it, I somehow it came out. I can't remember how, but I got emotional. And then she said, she was like, you know, so many of my friends in school are out and, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing to see. And I was like, that's not how it was. There were people that were out, but it was still very, you know, risque and, and it was it was still not a normal thing, yeah. you know, for us. And she she was very she knew all like the key words to say. It was like, wow, someone so young has these words and this knowledge mm. that gives me hope. Yeah. So the next time the whole family was together, um, it came up and I and I I let it all out. And my sister was so my sister is probably the more religious one in our family in our, our immediate family. But she even said, you're more important than God. That just gave me chills. Yeah. I was like, wow. Okay. She's like, you know, forget all the rest of the stuff. It's still you're my sister. It's Talk it, about love being powerful in every form. Yeah. I mean, that's above her faith even. She's saying, you are my sister. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Did it change your relationship? Did you feel a shift uh, with your family from I there? did. I did. Because I, I feel like for so many years I was, you know, living in New York. I was living in, because I grew up in outside of D.C. and Virginia and spent a lot of time in Baltimore as well. Um, and I feel like I was just so far removed that they didn't have to see my lifestyle in New York or in L.A. You know, they didn't, they came and visited me once and they met my girlfriend at the time, but they thought she was a friend. And yeah. I was, and at the time I wanted to to introduce her as my girlfriend and I chickened out thinking, maybe this isn't isn't the one, you know, to introduce. And I don't want to have that pressure on either the family or her. And and I, I have to get to that point first. And that was like 10 years ago, 12 years, 13 years ago. Um, so, yeah, they didn't, I felt like they didn't need to know. But now I'm fully an open book and I, you know, discuss things with them. It's beautiful. It's different. Has that impacted your artistry as well? Because I imagine, even though you compartmentalized, it seemed. Yeah. But to have this secret, because it sounds like you've always been close to your family. Yeah. Did unleashing that influence your creativity? Big time. Big time. I think it's it's made it so then nothing is off limits. Um, spending more time with my father a few years ago, I, I started writing about him and and our experiences. He's he's a damn comedian, I tell you. <laughs> He's so funny. And and so now I, I think I've become more comfortable writing about what I know rather than trying to suppress it and, and just be vague in a song about it <laughs> or play a character about it. You know, it's it's like, all right, let's write the story and and be truthful. 
Yeah, that's really powerful. That's incredible. I received a question from a listener several years ago on a topic that someone else approached me about this last week. And the person who approached me didn't feel comfortable sharing their story. They essentially wanted to know if assault can impact your uh, identity, like if that could perhaps influence your orientation. So I went back and I was like, this sounds really familiar. And I found this uh, question that we went over um, a few years back from a listener named Jenna who wrote this. I went through a traumatic event a few years ago and haven't felt any sexual attraction since. I'm starting to think I'm asexual. That thought makes me feel peaceful and relieved. So I guess my question is, can someone become asexual? And how do I know if I am or if there's something wrong with me that I'm not sexually inclined? This question is so profound, I think. I think it, it hits on so many important topics. And, of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with this person regardless of the answers to those questions. But here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Jenna. I really appreciate this question because I think so many women and even men often find themselves um, wondering what's sort of happening with their sexual feelings um, and their sexual orientation. And uh, asexuality is a sexual, sexual orientation that actually is about 1% of sort of the population. And it's really characterized by a persistent lack of sexual attraction toward any gender. Um, but the part that's so striking to me in your question is that you haven't felt sexual attraction since a traumatic event. So it sounds like before that uh, you had felt sort of intrinsically in your body pleasure and attraction, and I'm a jumping to the conclusion, positive sexual experiences. And so, you know, I often think that it's not uncommon that women who've experienced uh, a traumatic ex event or who have uh, negative feelings toward uh, either the history of their body or have had eating struggles or either unwanted sexual tension or experiences, sometimes the way that it translates in the body is the body knows how to keep you safe. And, you know, it sort of puts up a wall. We sort of call that, you know, coping protection defense. But, you know, this might be your way, your body's way of sort of keeping yourself safe. In fact, it says that, you know, the thought of being asexual, you feel peaceful and relieved. And I imagine it's because then you wouldn't have to sort of face the discomfort of what would happen if I sort of allowed my body to feel or experience. And I get that with a partner that could be feel really vulnerable and risky and scary. And I think that, you know, the first place to start is to notice whether or not you have any sexual thoughts or feelings or can explore that on your own because you can absolutely pace and experience just to notice, you know, arousals both mental and physical. So, uh, you know, is there thinking about previous experiences, you know, can you tap into a sense of what you enjoyed, felt good or pleasant about that? Um, and what happens when you just caress your body? Don't even focus on direct, uh, you know, clitoral stimulation or your breast, but just sensual touch. I mean, I believe that we're wired for connection, sort of from the cradle to the grave. And I also believe that we're wired to feel the right of pleasure in our bodies. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to asexuality, listen, there's no judgment. Um, you know, you feel what you feel and you don't feel what you don't feel. Um, and I think the question is though, whether it's because sort of definitively this is a new phase of life or is sort of fear and anxiety perhaps running the show and it just feels safer to feel shut down. I thought she wrote such excellent points. One of them being, if it is anxiety induced, Yeah. 
I feel that it would naturally shift with healing. Yes. That it doesn't need to be forced. You don't have to figure no. this out right now. It's mm -hmm. okay to not know, I think. It's okay. it's fine to not know what our orientation is. And and our orientation also can be fluid, just as gender is. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I actually thought for a long time that maybe that mine, because I've had a lot of trauma, and a lot of it's been sexual as well. And I thought that that was... Um, uh, kind of a precursor to my orientation and my identity but I know I, I looked back and I was like no I know I've I've been into girls since I was a little girl and boys like I remember preschool <laughs> mm -hmm. um and then also uh my the first time I technically personally lost my virginity was with my best friend in middle school it wasn't someone I was in a romantic relationship with but we spent so much time together and it was it felt comfortable and normal um it was even even with the trauma that I'd you know experienced before that it was there's still a sexual attraction but it just still has to be connected yeah I yeah. think it can be hard to sort out when I think because there's stigma still around LGBTQIA plus identities anything that's not heteronormative and because most people have gone through some type of traumatic event I think it's 70 percent of people yeah sexual trauma is very prevalent so I think it's a common thing to have your mind jump there and go oh did this cause this as though it's an affliction yeah yeah and it can definitely put pause on things but with the proper uh therapy the proper yeah. healing hopefully things would bounce back if yeah. if they notice a big shift Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so true. It's so true. There's there's also, I think, a societal idea that if we are, if we're not asexual, then we, there's something wrong with us if we're not desiring sex often enough. Yeah. You know, and it's it's totally fine. I, I heard this really wonderful sex educator. She's um, a bit of a pioneer in the field on a panel at one point say there was a period of her life where for, I think it was a year, maybe longer, where she had no desire for partner sex at all. She only wanted to masturbate. And it was just such a lovely thing to hear somebody be up there saying and normalizing. It wasn't a, yeah. oh my gosh, that's all I wanted. It was, this is how I was then, yeah. moving on. I mean, there's nothing, like we don't have to measure up to anybody. No, and, and honestly, she can control the outcome of the of her session. So. Completely, <laughs> yeah. That was another point I liked about what Dr. Megan said is that <laughs> You have control over – we still, no matter what our identity is, we are worthy of pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can stand in the way of that or, or things can happen that can make that really challenging. Yeah. But, but pleasure is not frivolous and pleasure is not this, like, bonus. No, <laughs> it's exactly. It's actually, a, like, a quality of life thing. Yeah. It's pretty important. No, I, I, I have um... – Masturbation's definitely on a priority list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I think if, if you're if you're gonna make time to have like an occasional massage or have a yummy dessert, it's, it's like it's so stress relieving. It is, you know. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious. You said you really want representation, more representation of all these different identities, and you're outspoken about it. You've done writing about it. Um, what else can we do to kind of fix this problem? How do we get more representation? I mean, I think the media landscape's been changing, which is beautiful. Um, a lot more people are feeling comfortable coming out. And, and, and I've noticed also um, people have come out and then changed their status because they like were, are coming out in levels, in steps, and they weren't comfortable coming completely out. You know, they kind of do baby steps. And so I feel like that that's going to kind of lead the way. 
but I think in in communities too, it has to be discussed more and talked more. There there could be workshops, there could be outreach, um, because there's still pockets of places that of people that don't fully embrace it. Um, I have family, uh, extended family that I, I feel like could use some embracing, and 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 I know I've I've heard of their relatives also seeming to give you know, like put out their hand to say I'm here with you if you want to do this you know um but it's still interesting that even now it's it's a tough thing and and especially the Latinx community I feel like the indigenous community it depends on the tribe um still uh there's still some tribes that have been very colonialized and still don't see the beauty in two two spirit representation um, how that was celebrated, you know, many years ago it was like almost like we were deities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, historically, yeah, it was not stigmatized; it was glorified. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it was very special. It was it, you could see from everyone's point of view. You could feel mm-hmm. from everyone's point of view. So you were you were the most level-headed, you know, because you weren't thinking one way or the other. You were thinking encompassing it all. Um. So it's. I think it's changing. I think there's still a lot of work left left to be done. There's a lot of communities that don't aren't exposed to media or internet still. Um, but I think the the more that people take these these thoughts back and these conversations back to their communities, the, the more it'll change. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. Would you tell us a little bit about your music? I'm yes. hoping we can share a little teaser uh, at the end of the episode so, so keep listening tell us what's happening lately um, about your style your your motivations well um so i recently did i, I appeared in a, a tv series the amazon show too old to die young and this was the first time that i was asked to sing in spanish so um you know i grew up speaking the language but i just for some reason didn't think that i should sing in spanish or that it fit my style or my voice um, so this was my first foray into it, and I, we were supposed to do uh, what you call record a, a scratch track or, or um, something that I could mime to, uh, lip sync to during the takes on set, but that didn't end up happening. There was a technical difficulty, and, and we scratched that idea, and I actually sang the song like 50 times on set and all the way through oh my goodness. for every long like 10-minute take that we did. Um, and I did that for two days. And I thought I would be sick of the song. I thought I would be sick of my voice. I thought I would be sick of singing in Spanish. But I fell deeply, madly in love with it. Mm. And it and it opened something. I don't know if it's the language or if it's connecting with another part of me that was also kind of suppressed a little bit. But um, the vowels are, are just lead to more vocalization. And whereas the English language kind of stops things, it's it's kind of abrupt in some words. <laughs> totally. So so when I sing in Spanish, it's like it's a whole different person. Um, wow. So now I've been rec- uh, I've been compared to Linda Rodstad, which I'm like, wow. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Yeah. Thank you. It is so gorgeous. I was like. I know her like it's so it's so powerful and it has you can feel your emotional connection. To yeah. It. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm translating the rest of my record. I'm going to be releasing that. Um, I also want to learn Quechua, my indigenous language. Um, it's actually the second most spoken language in South America. It's they've been able to preserve that part of the culture. There's there's a different dialects from country to country and from tribe to tribe. But 
you know, for the overall, it's it's a pretty universal language down there. English is not the second most spoken. It's Quechua's, which mm. is amazing. Um, so I feel like, you know, also connecting to my roots, but there's actually a market for it. <laughs> there's people who speak it still, and it's, a, a, you know, a language that I could actually use. So I'm going to do that, but I've also... There's another series that I'm going to be in that now I'm writing songs for as well. So I'm I, not sure if I'm going to combine or do a couple albums. I'm not sure. But, That's amazing. Yeah. If people want to learn more, what's the best place? Um, my website, carolinahoyos.com, or any of my social media. It's usually A Girl I Know. That's my artist name. A Girl I Know or A Girl I Know Music um, is the one on Twitter. Beautiful. Yeah. So at the end of your article, you shared this really lovely message to your younger self. Do you mm. mind if I read it? Oh, please do. You said, to my younger self, you can do it. Don't wait. Work on yourself and don't run away. Heal your traumas. You'll have so much more time to be 100% free and 100% you. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to embrace your individuality. Be proud. Be fierce. Be you. What do you think your younger self would think of you today or, or hearing that? Oh, man, my younger self would, like, high-five me, hug me, <laughs> um, probably come on tour with me. <laughs> How cool would that be? There's another meaning for your two-spirit. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, exactly. do you feel an inner child sense? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was just saying this. Who were, uh, This is weird. Did I just? I think I just wrote this. I've been applying to a lot of fellowships and grants and stuff for my work, but... Um, I feel like a lot of the healing that I've done with my dad and with my family, it's as if our inner child have been holding hands mm. and leading us both, you know, through that. It's been really beautiful. Yeah, I always think about my inner child and, and how can I make them more comfortable, which translates to how can I make, you know, my nephews and nieces and their lives better. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was awesome to see you. Thank you. It was good to see you, too. <laughs> and if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe if you haven't and leave us a rating and review. You can also check out my Girl Boner books. They're available on Amazon and most anywhere books are sold. Now please enjoy some of this lovely music by Carolina. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.
termina.